Hi, welcome to Becoming Other, episode 15. It's been quite a while since my last episode. I got busy with school and work and stuff. But the topic for this episode is going to be pessimism. So you weren't missing anything anyway. Seriously though, I have felt a little bit of struggling with uh, what is the purpose behind what I'm doing and a, a bit of a feeling of futility especially when considering uh, that I'm trying to do a beyond left and right philosophy, right? But the the forces of the left and the right are already established things. So it sometimes feels uh, almost impossible to, to start something beyond uh, the left and right because... You kind of think, well, if it was possible, wouldn't it have been done already? That right there is it's kind of a, a pessimist logic. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, parable of an economist who saw $100 lying on the street. And he refused to pick it up because, according to his economic theory... The $100 couldn't have existed because someone would have picked it up already because they would have uh, they would have profited by doing so, right? So I do believe that there are opportunities to think differently, to feel differently, to challenge paradigms. I mean, that's kind of the way anything changes, right? And everything is always changing. So you can't necessarily given to this idea that everything is useless or futile and at the end of the day pessimism comes down to more of like a malaise almost like a physical uh malaise or a feeling right um in your body and uh i was just intrigued by this pessimism book by the philosopher eugene thacker and i was just in england recently and I happened to uh, to be walking through the park, and I saw this radical bookstore. Went in there, and immediately this this book caught my attention. So um, I feel like uh, the fact that I've been struggling with pessimism just made me interested to read this book and see what it's about. The actual title of the book is called "It's called Infinite Resignation," but the main contents consists mostly of a of an essay called on pessimism and it's composed of a, a series of aphorisms ranging from single sentences to paragraphs etc and then there's another section where he talks about some of the main pessimist thinkers throughout history uh so i'm just gonna uh read some selections or excerpts from the main pessimism essay after that, I'll give some thoughts as to where I stand with pessimism and what this means for the beyond left and right philosophy. Whenever it occurs, however it occurs, pessimism has but one effect. It introduces humility into thought. It undermines the innumerable self-aggrandizing postures that constitute the human being. Pessimism is the humility of the species that has named itself, thought, furtively stumbling upon its own limitations on black wings of futility. 
and this is helpful. Pessimism is the night side of thought, a melodrama of the futility of the brain, a lyricism written in the graveyard of philosophy. No one ever needs pessimism in the way that one needs optimism. For instance, to inspire one to great heights and pick oneself up in the way one needs constructive criticism, advice, and feedback, inspirational books, or just a pat on the back. Though I like to imagine the idea of pessimism as self-help. Pessimism is a philosophically untenable position. No self-respecting philosopher would ever describe themselves as a pessimist. It's more of an indictment than a philosophy. Yet without exception, everyone has, at some point in their lives, had to confront pessimism, if not as a philosophy, then as a grievance against oneself or against others, against one's life or one's circumstances, against the state of affairs or against the world in general. The closest pessimism comes to philosophical argument is the droll and sardonic, we'll never make it, or simply, we're doomed. Every effort doomed to failure, every project doomed to incompletion, every thought doomed to be unthought, every life doomed to be unlived. When solutions produce problems, when thought flounders in the absence of order, unity, and purpose, when healthy skepticism turns into pathological sarcasm, this is usually when pessimism enters the fray. The problem is that when pessimism enters philosophical discussion, it is almost never helpful. In fact, it makes things worse. However, in its unending miserere, Sometimes something interesting happens. It raises the stakes of the discussion, scaling things up beyond the self-interest, self-interested level of human beings living in a human world, beyond our wants and desires, beyond our individual or collective self-importance. Besides, we didn't really think we could figure it out, did we? A strange philosophy, then. The most adequate, the least helpful. Is there any philosophy that is not in some way built upon disenchantment and that does not ultimately crumble beneath its own weight? Disenchantment as chanting, as a chant, a mantra, a solitary monophonic voice rendered insignificant by the intimate immensity surrounding it. Things should be good, I tell myself, but they're, well, not so good. Nothing seems to make sense, and it should, shouldn't it? Granted, Things weren't exactly perfect before, but now they're definitely worse, or so it seems. And this, on top of the simplest of things, having to live a life. The luminous point at which logic becomes contemplation, lost in thought, adrift in deep space, dreamless sleep. The very term pessimism suggests a school of thought, a movement, even a community. But pessimism always has a membership of one, maybe two, one of them imaginary. Ideally, of course, it would have a membership of none, with only a scribbled, illegible note left behind in some long-forgotten forest. Anatomy of Pessimism Pessimism's two major keys are moral and metaphysical pessimism, its subjective and objective poles, an attitude towards the world, and a claim about the world. For the moral pessimist, it is better not to have been born at all. For the metaphysical pessimist, this is the worst of all possible worlds. For moral pessimism, the problem is the solipsism of human beings, the world made 
in our own suffocating image, a world for us. For metaphysical pessimism, the problem is the solipsism of the world, closed off and opaque, objected and projected as a world in itself. But both moral and metaphysical pessimism are compromised philosophically. They are cut short by their failure to locate human beings within a larger non-human world. A stark musicality of thought, a headlong flight towards a horizon whose only promise is that all will be for naught. A generalized mis misanthropy without the anthropos. Pessimism crystallizes around this futility. Melancholy of anatomy. The logic of pessimism moves through three refusals, saying no to the world as it, as it is, or Schopenhauer's tears, saying yes to the world as it is, or Nietzsche's laughter, and refusing to say either yes or no, or Sioran's sleep. Crying, laughing, sleeping, what other responses are adequate to a world that seems so indifferent? Cosmic pessimism. Beyond moral pessimism and metaphysical pessimism, this is another kind, a pessimism that is neither subjective nor objective, that is neither about the world for us nor about the world in itself, a pessimism of the world without us. I could call this a cosmic pessimism, but this sounds too majestic, too full of wonder, too much the bitter aftertaste of the great beyond. Words falter, as does thought. And so we are left with a weakened pessimism, a pessimism that is first and last about cosmos, a suspicion towards the necessity and possibility of order. This pessimism entails a drastic scaling up or scaling down of the human point of view, the disorientation of deep space and deep time, all of this shadowed by an impasse, a primordial in insignificance, the impossibility of ever adequately accounting for one's happenstance existence. All that remains is the desiderata of impersonal affects, agonistic, impassive, defiant, reclusive, filled with sorrow and flailing at that architectonic chess match called philosophy, a flailing that pessimism tries to raise to the level of an art, though what usually results is slapstick. The worst implies a value judgment, one made based on scant evidence and little experience. Perhaps this is why the true optimists are the most severe pessimists. They are optimists who have run out of options. They are almost ecstatically inundated by the worst. Nietzsche once called it a pessimism of joy. It seems that sooner or later, we are all doomed to become optimists of this sort. Song of Gloom, Song of Doom. Doom is not just the sense that all things will turn out badly, but that all things inevitably come to an end, irrespective of whether or not they really do come to an end. What emerges from doom is a sense of the non-human world as an, as an attractor, a horizon towards which the human is fatally drawn. Doom is humanity given over to unhumanity in an act of self-abnegation. Gloom is the atmospheric climate as much as impression as if people are also gloomy. This is simply the byproduct of an anodyne atmosphere that only incidentally involves human beings. Gloom is more climatological than psychological, 
the stuff of dim, hazy, overcast skies, of ruins and overgrown cemeteries, of a misty, lethargic fog that moves with the same languorlessness of our own, crouched and sullen, listening to a disinterested world. Gloom is the counterpoint, counterpoint of doom. What futility is to the former, fatality is to the latter. Doom is marked by temporality, all things precariously drawn to their end, whereas gloom is the austerity of stillness, all things sad, static, and suspended, a meandering smoke hovering over cold lichen stones and damp fir trees. Gloom and doom are the mortification of philosophy. I like to imagine that this realization alone is the thread that connects the charnel ground agori with the poets of the graveyard school. Song of Sorrow Nietzsche once castigated Schopenhauer for not being pessimistic enough. He writes, Schopenhauer, though a pessimist, really played the flute. Every day after dinner, one should read his biography on that. And incidentally, a pessimist, one who denies God and the world, but comes to a stop before morality, who affirms morality and plays the flute? What? Is that really a pessimist? We know that Schopenhauer did possess a collection of musical instruments, and we also know that Nietzsche himself composed music. But for the pessimist who says no to everything, and yet finds comfort in music, the no saying of pessimism can only be a weak way of saying yes. The weightiest accusation undercut by the flightiest of replies. The least that Schopenhauer could have done is play the bass. Pessimism always falls short of being philosophical. My back aches, my knees hurt, I couldn't sleep last night, I'm stressed out, and I think I'm finally coming down with something. Pessimism abjures all pretenses towards system, towards the purity of analysis and the dignity of critique. We didn't really think we could figure it out, did we? It was just passing time, something to do, a bold gesture put forth in all its fragility, according to rules that we have agreed to forget that we made up in the first place. Every thought marked by a shadowy incomprehension that precedes it, and a futility that undermines it. That pessimism speaks in whatever voice is the sing singing testimony to this futility and this incomprehension. Take a chance and step outside, lose some sleep, and say you tried. I often feel that philosophy is simply a long, tedious testament of human hubris. I envy the philosopher who is able to confidently claim that philosophy is the pinnacle of human consciousness, or the height of human cognition, or that by which we ensure the nobility of critique. Not for me. Philosophy is always reducible to three things a therapeutic function to make us feel better, smarter, or wiser, an explanatory function. This is how the world works, its laws and variables, and a hermeneutic function. Aha, so that's why things are the way they are. Philosophy is reducible to self-help, a guide to better living, and a map of the world made in our own image. Claustrophobia. The ultimatum is the core of pessimistic thinking. It is, for pessimism, a way of pushing thought to ultimately laughable conclusions. When all is said and done, when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, I mean really, basically, these are the axioms of pessimism, 
axioms that reach their own ultimatum and reducing pessimism itself to nonsense. When I say that, basically, when all is said and done, philosophy is just people with degrees and professorships playing a Byzantine game of logic whose rules they made up and ceremoniously presenting it between the covers of large imposing tomes with titles of the type X and Y, being and time, process and reality, truth and method, difference and repetition, being and event, and so on. When I say this, with little experience and less proof, with equal parts gaiety and gravity, it is made possible by the ultimatum, a purely phantasmic form of logic that pessimism covets, as one does the objects that make up a shrine, or as one covets a really good joke. Many of Dostoevsky's characters are damned with an acute awareness of their own hypocrisy, even as they are acting it out. A character in the Brothers Karamazov confesses, I am very often passionately determined to serve humanity, and I might quite likely to have sacrificed my life for my fellow creatures, if for some reason it had suddenly been suddenly demanded of me, and yet I am quite incapable of living with anyone in one room for two days together. I love humanity, but I can't help but being surprised at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love men in particular. What's more, magnanimity and misanthropy seem to go hand in hand. I am capable of hating the best men in 24 hours, one because he sits too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold in the head and keeps on blowing his nose. Bad Utility Insofar as it considers itself philosophical, pessimism fancies itself as impervious to the demands of utility. But no philosophy, however much it tries, ever fully escapes from the lures of utility. Thus, it is possible that pessimism is actually quite useful, if not intellectual, intellectually noble. It can have a critical function, in which the utility of pessimism lies in its capacity for critique of the status quo, the pessimism of Adorno, Camus, Unamuno. It can have a moral function, in which pessimism serves as the mirror of hypocritical humanity, the pessimism of Pascal, Voltaire, Leopardi, and it can even serve a higher purpose in which pessimism's negativity serves as an affirmative prelude to something else, a philosophy beyond philosophy that cannot be named, the philosophy of Nietzsche, Lev Shostov, Kaiji Nishitani. In these three recuperations, pessimism becomes accidentally helpful. The Nullity of All Existence This was how Japanese philosopher Kaiji Nishitani once summarized Schopenhauer's pessimism. Nishitani was one of the earliest non-Western thinkers to take Schopenhauer's engagement with Buddhism seriously. He understood that Schopenhauer's insight is to have provided, or at least attempted to provide, a philosophical basis for this nullity. For Schopenhauer, a blind, impersonal, cosmic will manifests itself ceaselessly in a myriad of ways, suspending one within the interminable pendulum swing of striving and disappointment. As Nishitani notes, as long as the will to life is operative, dissatisfaction arises ceaselessly from within. Suffering is the unavoidable result. On the other hand, when the desired is attained and dissatisfaction is momentarily held in check, 
what has been attained becomes a burden. Boredom sets in. Boredom is insight into the essentially void nature of our existence and the existence of all things. It is no accident that philosophical pessimism is often allied with the short form of, in writing, the aphorism, the maxim, the parable, the fragment, the journal entry. But if this is so, it is not because the pessimism, pessimist has attained such heights of philosophical wisdom that only a few carefully chosen words suffice. No, the secret of the short form is not endless toil. It is laziness, listlessness. The pessimist harbors no ideals concerning literary craft or finding one's voice as a writer. There is only what suffices, what is finished enough, what can be left off, cast away, abandoned, when it physically hurts too much to write so much and then sit for so long. This is the secret of the short form in Nietzsche, style as illness, and also in Schopenhauer, style as intolerance. The wager made by human culture by philosophy, by the arts, by music. The wager is that for every limit that human knowledge comes up against, there is a secret reserve in which the problems without solutions and questions without answers are safeguarded as the essence of what it means to be a human being living in a human world. The effect of this is to produce a kind of consolation, the comfort of there always being something more, or at least something more than myself. I don't know the answer, and I certainly don't have any solutions, but perhaps someone somewhere does, or perhaps future generations will pose the questions without answers in new ways, making it possible to continue the great conversation, etc. But it is also from this attitude that human culture grows and spreads, like some jargon-filled Panglossian amoeba. There is always something more to say, or to say differently, or to say in a high falsetto or the register of birds and bats, or ultimately in a cacophony outside the range of human hearing altogether. Human culture, a kind of incessant ringing in the ears. Optimism of pessimism. For the pessimists, nothing is more horrific or enviable than happy people, people who seem to go about their lives, blissfully ignorant of all the varieties of doom that inhabit each living moment. Every breath, an expiration, every gesture for naught, every birth a crime. Pessimists falsely comfort themselves with the assurance that this awareness is the price one must pay for a higher form of consciousness. Leopardi, there is no clearer sign of not being very philosophical or wise than wishing all life to be wise and philosophical. Pessimism and idealism become uneasy bedfellows. Nietzsche provides the most astute critique of pessimism. Like religion, pessimism also says no to life and the world as it is. For Nietzsche, the futility, fallacy, absurdity, deceitfulness of such a refusal is that it always finds itself in a double bind. A condemnation of life on the part of the living is, in the end, only a symptom of a certain type of life. Hence, the criteria for any pessimist philosophy is compromise. Nietzsche again. To raise the problem of the value of life, you would need to be both outside of life and as familiar with life as someone, anyone, everyone who has ever lived. Perhaps what Nietzsche is grappling with in passages like these is a suspicion concerning the arbitrariness of life. To be alive and to refuse life, 
this is enough to tell us that the problem is inaccessible to us. In a sepulchral light, the color of growth and of death, starfish majestically descend from the air in swirling anodyne arabesques. Prisms float in their stillness and dream, crouching to leap even in their sleep, gathering gloom from uneven fathoms in their unhuman spines. Misanthropology. While all pessimists are misanthropes, not all misanthropes are pessimists. Misanthropes share with pessimists the venomous spite towards the anthropos, whether it be derived from concrete experience or from abstractions and generalities. Method matters little in misanthropy. But the misanthrope still holds out the hope for a life apart from human beings, a hope that, by definition, can never be fulfilled, since a misanthrope without others is no misanthrope. Misanthropy has something else in common with pessimism, a refusal to overcome misanthropy. Certainly, there are means for doing so. One can abandon society and one's fellow beings for desert caves, as did St. Antony. One can abandon civilization and the modern world, as did Thoreau. One can even abandon one's craft and finally oneself, as did Rimbaud. But even here, the ridiculous details of the everyday of living tend to get in the way, ruining everything. Eventually, other people come to visit you at your desert cave, asking for advice, or you find that you need a new pair of boots, more paper to ride on, supplies, and a blanket, or you realize you've simply exchanged one banal life for another, and you end up writing abbreviated, plaintive letters home as an illness eats away at your cadaverous body. Contrary to expectation, the misanthrope does not seek a paradise of life without others. This is why misanthropes are frequently found in populated areas. Moliere understood this well, portraying, portraying it in his 1666 play, Les Misanthropes. All are corrupt, there's nothing to be seen, in court or a town but aggravates my spleen. I follow, in, follow into a deep gloom and melancholy when I survey the scene of human folly. Finding on every hand base flattery, injustice, fraud, self-interest, treachery. Ah, it is too much. Mankind has grown so base. I mean to break with the whole human race. But beneath this, there is a further austerity to the misanthrope. The strange comfort in knowing that, even in the absence of all people, there would still remain a final misanthropy against oneself. Misanthropy, like pessimism, is an a priori state, apart from any experience. Leopardi. Men are wretched by necessity and determined to believe themselves wretched by accident. Pessimism is the final resort of the saint, of one who would turn his back upon man's estate like most mystics, of the knave who knows just enough about life to deem himself able to laugh at it, of the coward who is overwhelmed by his surroundings and would beg or rather whine off of the thinker whose thought in his own self-delusion, turns upon a negation. Pessimism, like music, always takes itself too seriously. Doubtful. Where does doubt stop? Every philosopher must answer this question. Descartes. Doubt stops at self-consciousness, the cogito. Doubt stops that it, it can, so it can be constructive. Hume. Doubt stops at the habitual repetition of cause and effect. Doubt stops because it is constructed. Wittgenstein, 
Doubt stops at language, a game played out to its end. Doubt stops so that the game can go on. Attaining such tranquility is, of course, easier said than done. In the Apology, Montaigne tells of how Pyrrho, when talking with someone, displayed such equanimity that if the discussant walked away, Pyrrho would simply continue talking, as if nothing had changed. Astral Projection The more I talk to people, the less I see the point in conversation. I often, I've often been in the midst of a conversation and have suddenly, unwillingly, been extracted mysteriously from it, as if I were observing the whole thing with a strange sense of detached melancholy, like an out-of-body experience. Why exactly are we talking? What exactly are we saying? And how long have we been talking? It's as if we talk in order to slow down time, thereby secretly extending our share of immortality just a little. Nietzsche dubbed his own brand of pessimism Dionysian pessimism. It would re retain the vitriol and mis misanthropy of Schopenhauer's philosophy while jettisoning its world wariness. This Dionysian pessimism would become, for Nietzsche, a source of joy, of the greatest and most difficult affirmation. All that we esteem would exist indifferently alongside all that we decry, the highest and the lowest, the most meaningful and the most meaningless, exclaiming a reverberant, even musical yes to all that is, as it is. Few of us have the capacity for such a pessimism. Truthfully, not even Nietzsche did. But what emerges from it is a strange, vaporous, vacuous sense of the unhuman. Even Nietzsche was aware of this. In one of the last notebooks, he writes, the pessimism of strength ends in the Odyssey. From the Brothers Karamazov, for the last time, definitely, is there a god or not? It's the last time I'll ask. For the last time, no. Then who is laughing at mankind? Hans Jonas's The Gnostic Religion gives us hints of a pessimist religion. The world is neither order and harmony, the Greek cosmos, nor is it preordained or destined, the Judaic logos. The world is alien and absurd, caught between an unknowable depth and an unspeakable silence that together produce the haphazard and arbitrary plurama of worldly existence. From ancient thinkers like Valentius, one can even extract a dogmatic pessimism. All gods are suffering, the world is in error, and the human is unconditionally estranged. In such a situation, the one and only benefit of Gnosis lies in its adamant refusal of everything. But this is already too modern. The pessimist despairs of not, not of failing, but of having had to make an effort in the first place. The tedium of effort, the secret link between pessimism and the aphorism, the fragment, the stray thought. Deep space, the only place worthy of depression. Under forests of utility, there are no conclusions, no resolutions, no revelations, no epiphanies. There is not even a last page. One finishes writing a book by walking away from it. Lev Shostov writes, when a person is young, he writes because it seems to him that he has discovered a new almighty truth, which he must make haste to impart to forlorn humankind. Later, becoming more modest, he begins to doubt his truths and then he tries to convince himself. A few more years go by, and he knows he was mistaken all around, so there is no need to convince himself. Nevertheless, 
he continues to write because he is not fit for any other work. And to be accounted a superfluous person is so horrible. Resignation is the residue of failure. There is no philosophy of pessimism, only the reverse. End of excerpts. So, uh, in my view, pessimism does indeed lead to humility. It entails stepping back from passionate engagement with our projects and commitments, asking whether or not they're really justified. In the absence of the pull of those commitments, we have to directly face awareness of our own frailty, mortality, weakness, and limitations. This is often a frightening thing to do, almost intentionally cutting out the supports which gave our life meaning, most of it ego. But I believe the result is a more authentic relationship with our life world and surroundings. How easy is it to be swept away by various fantasies? The escapism might feel good to you, but uh, is the real world effect of your activity simply imagined or virtual like a video game? If so, was the activity really meaningful in the first place? Nozick's uh, experience machine comes to, comes to mind here. Uh, you can read up on this, but the basic idea is that uh, if, you were, if there was a machine that simulated life, that when you stepped into this machine, uh, it convinced you you were living, uh, living out all your dreams and you thought it was real but it actually was just the machine generating these experiences for you. Would you step into that machine and uh, live your whole life in that machine? I mean, it might, uh, you might feel really good in this machine, but at the end of the day, you're just sitting there and you aren't actually doing anything in the world. So I think that uh, our fantasies and, and escapism in some way might be similar to that. And uh, I think that taking a pessimistic attitude can cause us to reevaluate uh, the our, our simulations, our virtual simulations that we engage in. The sobering effect of pessimism causes us to reevaluate our commitments. It may be depressing at first, but if you're honest with yourself, the depression was always there, periodically covered up by episodes of mania. That's because you never dealt with the underlying problem. At its most fundamental, your relationship to mortality in an imperfect and flawed world. Running away from this was the secret motivation for your optimistic project, and therefore it is inauthentic, only causing pain for yourself and others. When you have an authentic relation to your surroundings, then you can cultivate healthy projects, ones which actually have some chance of bearing fruit. This is a realistic ground for optimism. What is the relation of pessimism to beyond left and right? In a certain light, BLR, beyond left and right, is a fundamentally pessimistic project. Established political forces, whether right or left, promise worldly salvation, whether in the form of progressive or communist utopia, or a return to the good old days when men were men, women were women, and America was great. Typically, when one's political orientation causes them to be skeptical of one promise, they take refuge in the other promise, and there's a whole group of people ready to assure them that it will be realized. The enlightened centrist puts his faith in the promise of everyone being united under the banner of reason. The pessimist doesn't think any of that is going to happen. A sober look at the political situation shows that there was never a time when America was great, since it has problems like every other nation. 
every attempt at utopia has generated something considerably less than that. And reason has never been a top priority for most humans, especially the ones who claim to be eminently reasonable. The real effect of passionate commitment to left and right is misery for everyone. In your mind, you are liberating mankind. In effect, you are sending millions to gulags. In your mind, you are restoring the glorious ethnostate. In reality, you are returning to grunting barbarians. In your mind, we are all philosophers debating our ideas in ancient Athens. In reality, we are cheering blood sports at the Colosseum. Or, more likely, the establishment powers that that be just continue to rule like always, playing your emotions like a fiddle. In the face of this mass delusion, it is not only reasonable to embrace pessimism, it may be morally and ethically required. Only after we step back from our collective commitments can we authentically relate to our surroundings and reorient ourselves. No, capitalism is not the root of all evil. It's actually pretty amazing that you can get any product shipped to your doorstep in two days, isn't it? But neither are free markets the solution to everything. If you're honest with yourself, it does kind of suck to be under your boss's thumb for the majority of your waking hours, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like freedom. But the debate between capitalism and socialism is all virtual, and therefore it achieves nothing. Neither people's material relation or their imaginary relation to their surroundings and life world are taken into account. Typically, after the initial optimistic delusion passes, you reorient with a more realistic goal or project. Instead of overthrowing capitalism and toppling U.S. empire, how about, number one, getting money out of politics, two, universal basic income, three, introducing reasonable environmental regulations, four, not bombing seven countries simultaneously. You don't have to argue for communism or defend Mao or Stalin to support any of these positions. For the right, instead of implementing the white ethnostate, how about just getting illegal immigration under control and not being politically correct? Neither of those positions necessitates arguing for genetic superiority of white people. Pessimism, in my view, is therefore a gateway towards a more realistic optimism of achievable goals. But it is a necessary gateway because clinging to established political projects reinforces the status quo. The promise of finally defeating your enemies on the left or right is always dangled in front of you, yet they always mysteriously emerge on the next election cycle to frustrate your goals once again. And the people you vote for to fight them always mysteriously continue the status quo once elected. Interesting. If a rat enters a maze with the promise of cheese and always ends up in a rat trap, the rat is a lot better off being pessimistic about this maze than optimistic. However, the beyond left and right adherent is even pessimistic about the ability of others to engage in this pessimistic reorientation, at least in current historical circumstances. It doesn't appear reasonable to expect that it will happen anytime soon. Therefore, BLR is to a large extent post-political, or rather pre-political. The necessary conditions for productive politics do not obtain. While care and concern may extend to all, the pessimist is forced to withdraw from political projects composed of a false optimism. The position is rather one of a hermit, mystic, scientific observer, or prophet. Left and right may be the only games in town, but that doesn't change the fact that this whole system 
left and right included, have to, has to be opposed from an ethical and moral standpoint. And it only means our situation is more desperate. If truth, justice, happiness, and fulfillment mean anything, then our only choice is to go BLR, even if the odds are completely stacked against it. If you haven't sold your soul yet to the powers that be, in all likelihood, you're already BLR and just don't know it. That's a potentially large base of support. There are BLR elements in the Yellow Jacket protests in France right now. So that should at least give some indication that BLR collective action is possible. One reason that people are so apathetic about politics is because left and right are their only options and they're sick of it. They want to be on left and right option. Thank <laughs> you.